Welcome, listeners, to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on July 16, 2018. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut. Joining me here today in the studio is Sokil Park from Liberty in North Korea, or LINK. We will be talking about working to help North Koreans from outside North Korea. Once again, NK News is offering a free year's subscription to our website to one reviewer who reviews our podcast, not only at iTunes, but also at other platforms. Also, you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. Don't forget, if you, if you enjoy the podcast, please share it with others so that our listenership will grow. Now, to introduce my special guest today, who is currently checking his texts, Sokil Park is South Korea Country Director and Director of Research and Strategy for Liberty in North Korea, or LINK. As well as overseeing LINK's Seoul-based operations, he works with North Korean defectors and experts to develop up-to-date insights and analysis on North Korea and foster people-focused strategies to accelerate change and opening in North Korea. Sokil regularly engages with policymakers and the international media to reframe North Korea by introducing more focus on social change in that country. So, Sakil, could you start by telling us what LINK is and what it does? Sure. So, Liberty in North Korea, LINK is an international NGO. We're headquartered in the US. I head up the Seoul office here. And then we have field staff on the ground in Southeast Asia. Uh, first of all, we're working with North Korean refugees. So, of course, people who are escaping across the river into China and then face the threat of exploitation or even being caught and sent back to North Korea. Uh, so, we have networks on the ground in place to bring North Korean refugees all the way through China. China and Southeast Asia to safe and free resettlement in South Korea or the United States. And then we work with people on the post-resettlement side a little bit as well to try and uh, ease their adjustment into the new lives. Of course, they're coming from very different culture and society. So there's a bunch of you know things that they have to learn and uh, navigate and uh, adapt to in their new lives. And then beyond that, we also work with people who've come from North Korea to try and help them share their stories with the world and uh, thereby to kind of change the narrative on North Korea, uh, bring more focus, not just, you know, on the traditional areas like Kim Jong-un and nuclear weapons, but uh, the North Korean people themselves. And so North Korean society, North Korean culture, how things are changing, uh, and uh, the North Korean people's agency in that. So that involves a, a variety of different media strategies. Some people call that sort of the Underground Railroad, harking back to uh, the movement of, of uh, folks who helped the escaped slaves go up to northern cities during the the, uh, the U.S. Civil War. Uh, would that be sort of an accurate analogy? Yeah, I think that analogy resonates with a lot of Americans in particular, mm -hmm. and I think study that in school. Um, so sometimes we've made that reference, uh, but uh, yeah, there's going to be uh, similarities, I guess, to a lot of different cases of uh, systematic kind of people smuggling, or I guess you could say ethical people smuggling, mm -hmm. uh, bringing them away from danger and to safety and right. uh, to freedom. I mean, obviously, without giving the game away too much, but how out in the field do you find North Koreans who are on the run? I mean, you know, they're not on a Facebook group. They're not walking around with signs saying, I'm from North Korea, help me get to any other place. How, how does that first contact usually, is there a usual ve vector for first contact? Yeah, it's a good question. And uh, there's a couple of vectors, uh, I guess. Uh, the first way is... 
know, we do have contacts on the ground that are able to identify these kind of people. Uh, they have their own networks. They may then refer them to our network if this is if this is a North Korean refugee and it's somebody who wants to get out but can't by themselves. And so we get those kind of referrals from people on the ground. And then also we get quite a lot of referrals from people who are from North Korea but have already resettled in South Korea. They may be in contact with their younger brother or their mother. Uh, sometimes that's while they're still in North Korea, of course, uh, using Chinese mobile phones that are smuggled into the country. Those people then may refer their family members maybe even while they're still in North Korea and they mm. still have to get out into China or it might be after they've made it to China. Do you have to be aware of um, or wary of potential infiltration by North Korean agents trying to find and stamp out these uh, under underground railroads? Yeah, of course. Uh, operational security is our highest priority and that's one of the threats to, uh, to that security. And so there are vetting processes. Of course, I can't get into that. No. Uh, uh, and I also don't work directly on the field work, so I probably wouldn't be able to share that much interesting or useful information anyway. Yeah. Uh, but, the, you know, both from the North Korean authorities and the Chinese authorities, uh, they're, of course, not friendly to our work. And so it has to operate under their radars. Now, a uh, similar question, but different context. How do uh, North Korean refugees who have already come to South Korea find out about Link or vice versa? I mean, again, there's no uh, refugee phone book. And I've met a couple of refugees in my experience who hadn't heard about Link until I mentioned it to them. So how do you go about finding people? It's it's fairly organic. Um, you know, we've been responsible for bringing hundreds of North Koreans to South Korea at this point. I think that it's already over 800 people that have come through our networks. The vast majority of them choose to come to South Korea. A small number go to the United States. So that's North Korean refugees and some of their children that are born in China as well. Mm. So technically not North Korean refugees themselves. And so those people are obviously familiar with uh, us as an organization and then there's also just you know another I don't know how many hundred people who have been in contact with us in some way maybe participating in one of our programs or working on uh, some kind of project with us and so there's definitely North Koreans out there who aren't familiar with us uh, including people who have resettled in South Korea but I would say that the the population that are familiar with us or maybe have heard of us to some extent uh, is probably growing year by year. And how does LINK differ from other organizations that help North Korean people? And do you liaise with or cooperate with other organizations? Yeah, so we don't really have uh, kind of official partnerships with specific organizations, but there is quite a lot of information sharing, uh, you know, informal, and it's quite a lot of the time is kind of based on personal relationships between the leaderships of these organizations. I mean, in my experience, both internationally and in South Korea, it's not a huge world, right? I mean, you probably know a lot of these NGOs and the people that work there. After working on this issue for a while, you tend to get to know personally the people mm -hmm. uh, and then so can kind of informally even if there's not an official uh, collaboration or alliance uh, kind of you know find find ways to help each other out and uh, share resources or, or information there's maybe not one specific way that we differ but a bunch of different ways that uh, in total in combination may make us a little bit different one is that we aren't originally based in South Korea. Most of the NGOs, for obvious reasons, that work on North Korea are based in Seoul, South mm -hmm. Korea. We're originally founded in the United States. So we're actually one of the few organizations that's 
dedicated to the North Korea issue that has offices in different countries. We're, in general, a fairly young NGO, although uh, sometimes I don't feel like that these days. We're also non-religious and non-political, and that extends as far as not receiving money from uh, any government, whether it be the US or South Korean governments. So, you know, there are different organizations that may uh, be similar to us in certain ways, but in total, those are maybe some of the ways that uh, mark us out. Now, you work with North Korean refugees, but you prefer not to use the word defector. Why is that? Well, actually, I I kind of use both. Uh, I I use the terms somewhat interchangeably. Uh, I think that in English, as well as probably in Korean, there's no perfect term. You know, whether it's defector, refugee, they all have specific connotations. For some people, it may sound quite political. The term refugee, for some people, I think, can be disempowering. It can kind of connote a victim and uh, somebody who is, you know, temporarily fleeing from a situation. And so if, if a North Korean person is resettled in South career, then after how many years mm. you stop calling them a refugee? You know, if they've, right. they've been living here for 10 years, for instance. So I kind of mix it up. I say, you know, somebody who's come from North Korea or maybe a resettled refugee or whatever it is to try and not stick on one label that might be problematic. And that's also a debate that we've seen in South Korea in the Korean language, isn't it? Is uh, what to label them. There's been different terms throughout the years that different governments have used. Is Setomen one that's, uh, that's the newest one that I can see? think of that came out during the sunshine policy period when Norman Hun was president. Is that still in use? I mean, has it been adopted by the community of defect, uh, refu- well, people from North Korean hometowns? Uh, that's not a bad one, actually, people yeah. from North yeah, Korean hometowns. Can we use my phrase from now on forever? <laughs> Amen. We can maybe find a way to shorten that down a little bit. So Sitomin, uh, as you said, is associated with the sunshine policy. So it's actually going back a little bit, a few years. Since then, the South Korean government has used Bukan Italjumin, so North Korean residents who have escaped. Yeah. Uh, and that's obviously a bit of a mouthful. And so it people are joining down to Taibukmin right. or Taibukja. Basically, there's no term that everybody loves. And so I don't know. I think that one of the things is maybe just not using defector or refugee as a catch all title because at the end of the day, these people are individuals and they may have gone through a refugee experience. Mm. Uh, but that may be the most difficult thing that they've gone through or one of the most. And so it doesn't necessarily serve their interests or, or everybody's interests to label with them with that for the rest of their lives mm-hmm. and kind of to con- potentially constrain them by really using a, a very kind of sticky label like that. It's a, a good point. So what can we learn from people with North Korean hometowns? Well, I think that, you know, North Korea famously is maybe more of an information black hole than a lot of other countries. Uh, it's not completely an information black hole. There's all sorts of ways that we can learn from, from people that visit the country, foreigners and uh, from satellite imagery and so on. But I think that a lot of our useful information about North Korea has nonetheless come from people who have you know, fled the country and then resettled in other countries, whether that be about the day-to-day life and how the political system constrains that. Uh, even a lot of understanding of North Korean ideologies, the, the human rights situations, humanitarian situations, of course. A lot of what we know, I think, about North Korea is thanks to North Koreans who have left the country and then uh, been able to share that. 
So they're our best source for getting up-to-date, accurate information out of North Korea? Yeah, if we if we had to go down to a single source, I think that the you know, so-called human intelligence that they bring out with them, of course, there are all sorts of caveats on that. And it, it you know, benefits more to use different data points in conjunction and try and triangulate, not just amongst North Korean refugees, but see if we can confirm some of what they're telling us mm-hmm. with people who may go on the ground as you know, Western diplomats based in Pyongyang, for instance, yeah. uh, satellite imagery, some of the work that, you know, friends like Curtis Melvin and so on do on counting marketplaces and then drawing up a picture by, you know, having this discussion between the blind men touching the elephant. Right. Uh, and then trying to get a sense of what that elephant might look like, actually. Okay, so you've just told us a bit about how we get uh, information out of North Korea. Uh, what about information into North Korea Uh, whether that be from South Korea or the rest of the world. Um, We hear sometimes stories about North Korea getting USB sticks uh, or phone calls from a relative in China or even in South Korea. Um, How much do we know, broadly speaking, about information flows into North Korea that the North Korean government would probably not like to, you know, would like to see stopped? Right. Uh, It's very hard on this question to give a lot of quantifiables, especially in terms of what's happening across the whole of North Korea. Right. Uh, in terms of those ground level, you know, social, cultural realities and it, what's in people's heads and how much people have learned uh, what they're thinking and so on, especially if you get away from Northeast provinces in particular, where more North Korean uh, refugees do hail from, it's harder to say. And so it's maybe a little bit easier to point to some trends and say the kind of phenomena that are happening and what we can learn from North Korean refugees without saying that this is universal or it's happening to a rate of 50% or whatever percentage uh, we might try and uh, kind of pluck out of some kind of methodology. And so the long-term picture does seem to be that, you know, this is long-term as in since the 1990s, North Korean people have had increasing ways of being able to access foreign media or information from the outside world. Mm. Uh, Famously, you know, it is going in on USB drives, micro SD cards, uh, you know, being shared amongst urban youth in particular, being traded. Sometimes people are watching that stuff together and there's kind of subcultures that revolve around, again, especially urban North Korean youth watching South Korean television programs, films, picking up linguistic habits, Mm. you know, that becomes a kind of social capital, social cachet. If you are able to throw in some South Korean words, vocabulary, or intonation, or accent into your conversations with North Korean friends, uh, you may look kind of cool in a way. But there's also a danger there, surely, isn't there? Like, what if one of your, if you have a falling out with one of your mates, and he or she says, well, you know, I heard Sokil use certain words, I can only think of oppa, which would be somewhat uh, uh, inappropriate for you, but yeah, just, you know, I heard this person using certain words and get you in, try to get you in trouble for that. Sure, there's a lot of risk associated with a lot of these different kind of behaviors, but especially on the more implicit, subtle linguistic stuff, they, you know, you can deny that. You can say, have a conversation on the street and even a passing person who might try and call you out on that. And there are even North Korean jokes that actually go along these lines. You know, they, if you say, no, I didn't say it with a South Korean accent, what are you talking about? I wouldn't. I don't even know how to say that in a South Korean accent. Maybe there's something wrong with your ears. I, I, you know, I said it in the proper North Korean way or whatever. Right. Uh, so 
for sure. In general, there are risks. Uh, and in general, in the Kim Jong-un era, those risks have increased. The associated punishments, you know, the, the associated crackdowns through North Korean refugees, it, it does seem to be consistently reported that uh, things have got more difficult. However, I think that ultimately the North Korean government there is playing a game of trying to slow down these trends, right? They can't ultimately stop information flows. They can't go into people's heads and take out the information that people have learned, learned already. Uh, and so through foreign media and also, uh, you know, as we were talking about North Korean refugees, a lot of them, maybe, you know, according to different surveys, maybe about half of them staying in contact with family members back home. And so the very rough kind of back of the envelope calculations would be out of about 30,000 North Koreans who have resettled in South Korea, if about half of them are staying in contact, and a lot of them are sending money back home as well through brokers uh, to their home communities and, and families, that amounts to probably tens of thousands of phone calls per year mm. directly between you know North Koreans who have resettled here and their home communities. And so that's significant communication, information, infiltration or contamination from the North Korean government's point of view. And then also the resources as well. Perhaps you know tens of millions of dollars going from North Koreans who've resettled here and sending that back to their home communities. Would it be that much? Yeah, again, you know, very rough uh, calculations being if you have about 15,000 people sending even just a thousand dollars each per year then that would be 15 million dollars and a lot of people it seems are able to send more than a thousand dollars per year and so you're looking at potentially you know again very roughly low tens of millions of dollars maybe 15 20 uh, which must be uh, an indirect help to the north korean economy right i mean like yeah. if, if uh, Presumably, if you were Kim Jong-un, you'd kind of secretly welcome this uh, inflow of capital, wouldn't you? It's going to be a double-edged sword, right? So uh, it's going directly to the North Korean people, mm -hmm. uh, especially in those cities that North Korean uh, defectors hail from. Some of it will be going to the North Korean authorities in form of bribes and so on. But in general, it's going to be going into very much kind of grassroots market economy in North Korea. And so to the extent to which Kim Jong-un and the top policy elites see that as a potential threat, uh, and it does seem like they see that contact in general, cross-border contact uh, between North Koreans who have left the country and their home communities, they see that as a threat. Mm -hmm. And so increasing the kind of crackdowns and pressure on those phone calls being made, using kind of man-in-the-middle technology to try and surveil those phone calls, even though they're happening on the Chinese networks. In general, border security does seem to have been a priority under the Kim Jong-un administration. And so that's that's probably kind of a double-edged sword, but overall they're probably trying to crack down more than anything. Now tell us about the documentary film, The Jiangmadang Generation. What's it all about? Where can people see it? Sure. So The Jiangmadang Generation is our latest documentary. We actually released the English version late last year with The Washington Post. So if you search The Jiangmadang Generation, you'll be able to see it on The Washington Post site or we also have it uh, on our own sites. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's up there on Vimeo and so on. Mm. Uh, and there are different language versions going out there now as well, including in Korean, French, Spanish, German, and other language versions to come. And so in terms of what it's about and why we made that documentary, well, I guess we have to address what the Jiangmanang generation is to start off with. It refers to the roughly equivalent of kind of North Korean millennials. So North Koreans born in the 80s, 90s, uh, who 
don't really have that much memory of the Kim Il-sung era. And so somewhat functioning state socialist economy grew up during the famine. And so from an early age, having that adversity and also their families and even themselves, a lot of the time relying on survival entrepreneurialism. You know, sometimes we refer to them as native capitalists, more so than relying on government rations and so on, uh, relying on market activities, private business, their own uh, ingenuity. At the same time, uh, kind of culturally, having this unprecedented access to foreign media, South Korean films, Chinese films, television programs, and so on, being smuggled into the country. And in fact, uh, for for people in some families, they will have probably received less schooling as well. Uh, in the 1990s, you know, a lot of schools have, uh, effectively stopped functioning or they were only partially functioning. They really grew up in a different society, economy, and culture to their parents. And so we would expect there to be some kind of generational differences. And they report that themselves. In fact, the reason why I first got interested in the Jangmanang generation as a concept was younger North Koreans telling me that they feel like they're different to their mm. parents' generation and that they felt like that was an important for me to understand if I'm trying to understand North Korean society and how it might be changing. Mm. And so we thought that that was a really interesting concept and kind of an encapsulation of a lot of different ways that North Korea is changing on the inside through the agency of the North Korean people. And also I think that's something uh, that people can kind of understand, right? People understand that in South Korea, in the United States, anywhere around the world, there is generational change. And so why wouldn't there be that kind of change in North Korea as well? And so using that as kind of a bit of an easier in to understanding social change phenomena in North Korea as well. What, uh, what does the media get wrong about North Korea with all this information out there? I think that the media gets probably less wrong than they used to, broadly speaking. And of course, uh, you know, maybe to give some credit to some of our friends in the media, mm. um, including some, some people who may be listening to this podcast, the media is a very diverse array of people and organizations, right? And so there's definitely, on North Korea in particular, there's a lot of people that come in and out of the issue. They may be working for an organization that doesn't really have the resources to have somebody looking at North Korea, anything like even part-time. When North Korea gets hot in the news, one of their reporters who may normally report on a totally different part mm. of the world or even local issues in their own country, all of a sudden has to report on North Korea. And so they're not going to have that background knowledge and expertise. Now, you also have top tier media who have people on the ground here who are more steeped in, you know, in the knowledge and have, you know, a, a vast array of contacts in, amongst North Korea analysts and expertise and uh, even North Korean people themselves. Overall, there is still this massive focus, of course, on North Korea as a security problem, North Korea's missiles, nuclear weapons, and still a lack of understanding was, you know, to some extent, understandably, of North Korea as a society, as a culture. I mean, for starters, it's the North Korean government that's to blame for that. They intentionally make their country and society hard to know mm -hmm. uh, from outsiders and uh, also through the process of isolating their people from the outside world. One of the reasons why maybe we've not made sustainable progress or as much sustainable progress as we would have liked as, you know, quote unquote, we in the international community concerned governments and so on uh, is maybe not having a sufficiently holistic and broad-based kind of strategy on North Korea. A lot of the time the world deals with North Korea as 
a security problem as a dictator with nuclear weapons and missiles, and we don't like that, so try and handle that. Of course, North Korea presents security problems, but it's a country. And I think the bigger picture, long term, we need to deal with North Korea as a country, as not just Kim Jong-un with nuclear weapons, mm. but as 25 million people, as a system, economy, culture, which needs to change and open up. Ultimately, basically, I think the North Korean people need to come into this picture. They need to come much more into our understanding of North Korea as an issue. We also need to see ultimately 25 million North Korean people as partners as part of the solution, all of these problems that emanate around North Korea, including the security, but also human rights, humanitarian, economic, uh, you know, the, the whole gamut of things that make people kind of worry about North Korea. We need to see North Korea change and open up and normalize as a country whilst managing the security uh, kind of aspects of that. Last month, uh, you helped to write an op-ed piece for Time magazine titled Forget Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, Here's Why the People of North Korea Are the Real Solution. Now, bearing in mind that it's pro quite possible that you didn't write that headline yourself, but that was a sub-editor at Time magazine. Um, what do you think of the recent summit meetings between North Korea and South Korea and between North Korea and the USA? The summits have been positive. You know, this is a positive direction. A lot of it is the start of a process, I think. And uh, there's, there's, there's some positives in there. But I think that in terms of maybe the missed opportunities to start off with all the way back before the first inter-Korean summit, uh, Foreign Minister Kang here explicitly telegraphing that human rights would not be on the table. And so signaling that very strongly, not just to the North Korean government, but to the whole world. And and then we also have, of course, in the United States, a president who doesn't seem overall fundamentally to be that concerned with human rights issues, especially, you know, rights issues of, of people that aren't Americans. You know, it's, broadly speaking, I, I don't think that's a controversial point. We have a kind of disempowerment of uh, a human rights framework. A human rights framework is not the only way to try and work for the betterment of the North Korean people's lives. And there are a lot of different things that I hope are pursued. Human rights, you know, as a framework has been built up over the past few decades in the United Nations and the importance of that and the importance of not taking out when it just becomes a little bit inconvenient. I think that it can be useful in our dialogue with North Korean government. The South Korean government, the US government, you know, not really prioritizing it and even explicitly deprioritizing it. I think that that disempowers even other actors, including the United Nations, uh, including maybe nations of the European Union that may be more minded to use that framework in their engagement with North Korea that might have kind of been diminished in this process. So again, I don't think that we're going to fundamentally solve the security issues just by dealing with Kim Jong-un and you know having this narrow focus on nuclear weapons and missiles. Uh, I think a lot of analysts at this point that think that we're not going to have 100% denuclearization completely verified and you know the whole CVID thing. And so we need this long-term approach that hopefully leads to, and I think fundamentally has to lead to, change, opening, and normalization of North Korea as a country in the international community. So it's about 
a full relationship. It's not just about uh, managing security problems, but a full relationship from the United States, from South Korea, from concerned countries with North Korea as a country. Human rights, and more broadly speaking, the relationship between the North Korean government and the North Korean people is an important part of that. And I think that it's important to include that up front as well, not just to sideline it and say, we'll get to that eventually, uh, because I think that that can be a missed opportunity. What do you say to people who criticize um, the, the, the conversation about human rights? They, they would say, you know, for example, that, that human rights is, uh, is weaponized. It becomes a stick with which to beat North Korea and portray it as a rogue nation. It becomes an industry unto itself, you know, and, and that uh, the most important human right is, is the right to live. Uh, and the right to eat. And as long as people can do that, then other things are less important. So how do you respond to that argument? There is a danger uh, that human rights inadvertently become something that is weaponized and politicized. If at the time that we can actually engage with the North Korean government, we throw that off the table. If it's only something that we raise when quote unquote, you know, the international community, the United States, South Korea, or whoever wants to pressure the North Korean government, and then it's raised at the United Nations. And then the North Korean diplomats, of course, come back with that, you know, time tested authoritarian government's argument that this is a political tool. It's not something that Western governments actually care about. It's just, you know, to make other countries gang up on us and isolate us and so on. There is a danger that we confirm to an extent that argument. We empower that authoritarian government's argument that it is a tool and we don't really care about it if we don't include it consistently when we have an opportunity. Not saying it, taking it off the table is a message in and of itself. And you're essentially saying that's not as important. We're going to focus on these security issues and we may come, you know, who knows? And we may come back to that later. What about those who would argue that life for the average North Korean, and I'm talking here about the 90%, 95% who are not the elites, who are not the Donju, who are not making it in the modern market system, that uh, life for those people really won't change substantially, won't improve substantially, uh, as long as a person of the Baek Dusan bloodline remains in, in control in Pyongyang. How would you react to that? I don't think that's necessarily true. North Korea has already changed a lot. Uh, and the economy has changed, you know, become more marketized. And North Korean people's livelihoods, not just Tonju and not just select people in Pyongyang, there has been a change and there's been a development. It's mostly actually thanks to the North Korean people themselves and increasing linkages to the Chinese economy and so on, rather than, you know, thanks to uh, Kim Jong-un's administration or something like that. Although, there does seem to be a trend under Kim Jong-un of, if anything, going with that direction instead of trying to trying to repress it. So I don't think we necessarily know that North Korea can't change with you know certain political conditions that might exist right now. Uh, I think that we can push for change and opening that's, again, already started and try and accelerate that. I think that that benefits the North Korean people. Now, it may be that at some point that change becomes more radical and there is a change in you know the makeup of the top policy elites. And that could lead to more radical economic and uh, social change and you know increase in human rights and so on as well. Uh, I think that there are different pathways. But even if you want more radical change, I think that pushing for gradual change doesn't contradict that. Well, what would it actually look like to have the North Korean people have growing influence in Pyongyang's policy decisions? 
I actually think that the North Korean people don't have zero influence in the North Korean government's policy uh, considerations. Uh, things change in North Korean society, and the North Korean government reacts, and sometimes they have proactive strategies. I think that one of the things that we're seeing long term, I think this is a, a reasonable hypothesis, is that Kim Jong-un has a long-term kind of uh, game plan. You know, he's, at the end of the day, he's 34 years old right now. He probably has to think about another four or five decades in charge. He probably understands that the out world outside him, South Korea is changing, China is changing. He still needs to be in power in 2060. It's going to be a very different world externally. And then internally, I think that he has a sense that things are changing inside. I think that we see the increase in rhetoric on the need for economic improvement. Even, you know, this year in April, the so-called, you know, somebody point, pointing to a pivot to the economy, the emphasis of security. This is all, you know, pointing to uh, a direction of Kim Jong-un trying to maintain power and control whilst moving forward, realizing that you can't just stand still and there actually has to be some economic development because otherwise North Korea is going to fall further and further behind and the North Korean people are going to learn more and more about that and at a certain point uh, that's going to become very dangerous for him I think that I think he realizes that if you'll permit me I'm going to make an analogy here bearing in mind that all analogies are imperfect and so it's very easy to pick holes in the analogy I'm just going to compare North Korea for a moment to another country that recently hosted the World Cup. Uh, in that country, if you have money, you can do a lot of things. You can get away with a lot of things, just like you wrote in your article in Time magazine in North Korea. If you've got money, you can do just about anything. But that doesn't mean that the ordinary Russians, whoops, I've said it, have influence in uh, Moscow's policy decisions. In fact, New York Times journalist Masha Gasson recently said on the Sam Harris Waking Up podcast that Russians don't have any opinions. They just repeat the last thing they heard on television. Uh, not because North, not because Russia is a totalitarian state anymore. We know it's not. But you know, it, it, there's a, a, a much more effective method of uh, marginalizing people's influence on policy decisions and making sure that people don't solidify around certain core principles or ideas by keeping the media confusing. Uh, and that keeps people safe and out of trouble. It allows them to live their lives and make money as best they can. But the influence on policy decisions is negligible uh, and people are disenfranchised. The price of life is cheap. Are these situations comparable? I mean, you, you make a direct line or direct linkage between situations with careers changing, there's markets, there's capitalization, people are able to buy things and sell things. And then you say, we want to see North Koreans have more influence on policymaking in Pyongyang. And in fact, we, we think we're seeing that. Can you, you know, compare the two situations a little bit? We need to be careful about absolutes here, right? So it may be that uh, the Russian people's influence on policymaking, for instance, in, in certain areas has become more marginalized than before, but still not zero, right? And I think that in North Korea, we're starting from a very low baseline where North Korean people have, have very little influence, both in Russia and in North Korea. The governments nonetheless have to maintain support and legitimacy from the people. They can't rule just through fear, and through, you know, managing the elites and, and stopping coup d'etats and so on. They have to maintain some support uh, and the people have to buy into, you know, okay, the, the, the country is somehow going in the, in the right direction. There is legitimacy uh, for this leadership and so on. And so that's where I put it. It's very low level, but it's non-zero. 
and from a non-zero level, it can move them in a more positive direction. To, to take it to the other extreme, if the North Korean people literally knew nothing about the outside world, if they knew nothing about China, if they knew nothing about South Korea, if there was no contacts, no mobile phone calls, you know, no foreign media being smuggled in and so on, and the North Korean people only had the choice of believing the North Korean government's narratives, propaganda films, and what they put out in the Rodong Shinmun and so on, then North Korean government could completely run roughshod over them in information terms and in narrative terms and also in terms of uh, securing their uh, legitimacy and control. They don't have that. They don't have complete control over the information space. And so the North Korean government has to reckon with a reality that both elites and ordinary North Koreans alike increasingly understand that not just they're behind South Korea economically and China, but that gap might be increasing and they increasingly understand the reasons for that. That eats into, it degrades the potency of the North Korean government's ideologies, narratives, and North Korean government's uh, legitimacy and support. Now, I've been reading Taeyong Ho's uh, memoir lately, and also uh, Ju Dehwan's book, um, A People's History of, uh, of South Korea. And I think both of them, and you see this in other texts as well, that they both advocate basically flooding North Korea with as much information as possible, uh, hoping that that or expecting that that will trigger the North Koreans to rise up and throw off the yackles, uh, shackles off the uh, Kim Jong-un administration. I think administration is perhaps a kind word. Many would say the word regime, but uh, let's be diplomatic today. Do, what do you think about that? Do you see that as being something that's possible simply through flooding North Korea's information that people will rise up and, and overthrow the, the North Korean system or, uh, or force a leadership change? Do you think that's something that we should be encouraging? Yeah, I think that increasing North Korean people's access to information, uh, ideas, uh, and media from the outside world is, of course, a positive thing. That in itself is an improvement in their human rights. It's an improvement in their, their right to access information and even cultural rights. Uh, and then it also leads to these other secondary uh, kind of consequences, including, you know, in the long term, pressure for, you know, change in North Korea, uh, empowerment of the North Korean people to think for themselves and to think of alternative realities and uh, uh, different futures for their own country. Who knows, at some point in the future, that might lead to public resistance against the North Korean government's uh, control, or maybe by waypoints, maybe through resistance on local issues. There's not no resistance in North Korea, right? There are different forms of low-level, sometimes sometimes more implicit, sometimes disorganized, uh, sometimes local issue uh, kind of protests or resistance. So there's not nothing. And so it's not impossible for then that to increase. I don't think that necessarily there's a straight line in between information and then a mass popular movement to overthrow the government. I think that one of the things that we have to reckon with on North Korea is it really has an unprecedented level of political control over the society. We, we only have a couple of minutes left. So I'm going to ask you a couple of rapid fire questions. I'm going to ask you to keep your answers to 30 seconds or less. Uh, how do young people in South Korea feel about North Korea and North Koreans? It's increasingly distant. I think that the idea of Minjok or a shared ethnicity with North Korea resonates less and less with young South Koreans. And so overall, there's less interest in North Korea as a country and also reunification. Which brings me to unification. What do you think about Korean unification? You're, you know, you speak Korean, you have a, a Korean father, you live in Korea. 
do you feel a sense of uh, of unification being you know a task in which you must play a part as Taeyong Hall writes in his memoirs or as Koreans see them see uh, you know unification being sort of homework for the Korean people do you see that as being part of your homework no, I don't think that it's inevitable. Uh, I think that reunification could be a means to an end. You know, if there was a button on this table and I could press it and uh, reunification could occur uh, like that and the stop of a finger, then I would press it because that would lead to a very immediate improvement for the North Korean people's lives. You know, I don't think that that's the only way to secure improvement in North Korean people's lives either. So how do you dialogue with South Korean youth to uh, keep them interested? You just mentioned that they're becoming more and more distant. Uh, I guess, in order for Link as a movement to continue to grow and grow and flourish, not only in South Korea, but in other places, you have to keep people interested. How do you do that in South Korea? Well, thankfully, there are, you know, a kind of niche of young South Koreans that are interested in North Korea. And so we have kind of a foothold that we can uh, build on. And then it's just, I think, classic uh, social mobilizing kind of campaigns. Uh, I think that one of the important things in South Korea is to open up the old frameworks that South Korean society and media and politics have interacted with North Korea through uh, and make it a lot more focused on the North Korean people as people and try and gives young South Koreans opportunities to build empathy with uh, their North Korean peers. I'm going to finish up there. Uh, thanks very much to Sakil Pak for joining us today in the studio. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, don't forget, listeners, you can listen to all of our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website, www.nknews.org. In fact, I'm going to have Christina put up links to Link and also the uh, Chiang Madang Generation and uh, maybe even the Time Magazine article that you co-wrote last month uh, on nknews.org. NK News, of course, is the leading repository of North Korean news research and analysis, and we hope to see you there. And you can send feedback, comments, questions, or guest suggestions to podcast at nknews.org. Our podcast is produced by Arius Dare and facilitated by Chad O'Carroll and Christina Lee. Lastly, a reminder that one random reviewer per week will win a free subscription to the NK News website, so please review us after listening and you might win. And you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the uh, code podcast at the checkout. And if you like, or even if you don't like this podcast, please share it with your friends. We want to hit 5,000 subscribers by the end of the year, or I might move to North Korea. Thanks very much, and listen again next time. Bye.